Um, and if you look at, you know, even globally, the top 30 grossing games the past year, 21 of those are um, Asian developers, um, and, a, and a large proportion of those are from from Chinese uh, developers. You know, as a mobile product guy, you, you'll you'll look at retention rates, D1s of 40% generally being good, but a lot of the games that are successful here in Asia are driving D1s of, you know, you're just like looking 55 to 60%, which is incredible. Hi everyone, it's Yuval Passov, your host of Game On Asia, a podcast about the mobile gaming ecosystem in Asia. Today I'm talking with Devin Nembir, Head of Product and Partner Development at Electronic Arts Asia. So you probably ask yourself, why should you listen to this episode? So first of all, this is the best episode ever. Yes, I'm, I'm totally serious about that. But beside that, you will learn a lot about what you need to know uh, before you launch your game in China. Why do you need to work with virtual influencers and not real influencers? Why is everyone is talking about um, location-based games? And what kind of games are driving 55 to 60% D1 retention in China and how they do that? Enjoy the episode. Devin, uh, great to have you here today with us. Great to be here, Yuval. Thank you. Um, I just, uh, as we always uh, start, uh, it would be great just if you can introduce yourself in less than 60 seconds. Less than 60 seconds. Okay. Um, I will try for a shortened version here, but um, I was born and raised in the San Francisco Bay Area, um, and mm -hmm. I've spent about a third of my life in Asia. Um, as a kid, spent time in Asia sporadically, uh, primarily Japan. Uh, lived in South Korea for a few years, uh, working early in my career. Uh, spent time in tech, investment banking, and ed tech, and Got into gaming in the early 2010s uh, with Kabam. Um, this was right after I returned from South Korea and I was planning to put down roots in San Francisco. And lo and behold, um, after a couple of years, I was asked to relocate to Beijing to build out our product function here. And I've been in China ever since. All right, great. Thanks for the introduction. Let's continue with a quick association game. I will say a word. You will say the first thing that comes to mind. Let's start with uh, China. Bigger than, larger than life. Kabam? Seed of innovation. Innovation. Met Metaverse? Still early. Mobile games? Uh, very complicated. iOS 14? The apocalypse. IP for mobile gaming? Increasingly important. Working from home? Adaptation. Thank you for that, Devin. We really need to adapt in so many different levels. Uh, let's move on to the first question that I have. Currently, you're the head of product in EA Asia, and, and it's quite different from other roles that you did back in the US. If you can just uh, tell us a little bit more about that. Sure, sure, yeah. Um, you know, I guess I will start just by saying um, uh, why I came to China in the first place, and I was saying I was relocated. Um, when I was with Kabam to uh, help build out our product function in, in Beijing. And that was, that was becoming a, a real uh, development hub for us in our mobile bid core games. Um, and after continuing to sort of scale 
um, our mid-core strategy there with you know games like Kingdoms of Camelot, The Hobbit, um, Marvel Contest of Champions stayed on when we launched that to eventually get a culturalized version in China. Um, then I moved to Shanghai uh, to join EA. Um, and as head of product for EA um, in, in APAC, my team basically focuses on, uh, on two major pillars. So the first pillar is product managing our internally developed free-to-play titles that are operating here in Asia. Games like FIFA Online, FIFA Mobile, uh, CNC Red Alert Mobile, uh, Plants vs. Zombies 2 in China, um, managing live operations, optimizing for you know acquisition, engagement, monetization, um, leveraging analytics and data to grow our games and, and inform uh, future roadmap, future development, um, assess the impact of features, and things like that. And um, you know, we do this along with our publishing and distribution partners in the region. Um, we have amazing uh, partners, uh, Tencent in China, uh, Nexon in, in Korea, and uh, Garena in Southeast Asia um, that we work with uh, to actualize the strategy. Um, so that's one pillar of what we do. Mm -hmm. um, the other pillar is, uh, I would say, you know, general strategy, which includes, I guess, partnerships, uh, licensing and co-dev partnerships in order to uh, grow EA's mobile portfolio and uh, lean more into our uh, amazing brands. Um, I think that IP is an advantage for us as a company. We have a lot of great brands, Plants vs. Zombies, The Sims, uh, Command and Conquer, etc. Um, and we're hoping to you know, lean more into that as we uh, grow our mobile portfolio. Um, I will say as a disclaimer, I mean, a lot of what I'm saying here, I think, is reflecting my personal perspective, not necessarily EA's perspective. But um, I think, you know, IPs um, are going to be a lot more important after um, iOS 14.5 uh, and the uh, ATT app tracking transparency and the IDFA deprecation. Um, I think are going to make IP more important to drive installs. And I think that, you know, EA is uh, in a good place competitively in that respect. So. Um, that's the other pillar of, of what we do is the, the CODEV uh, uh, development partnerships. So I think just to, to follow up with that, I, IP will be super important. And that's something that we hear, you know, globally. And now yeah. every, everyone is either working on their strategy or now seeing how they need to adjust to it. Lots of podcasts, lots of uh, articles. Maybe you can give us the, the perspective, you know, um, in Asia. Because I think that Asia, as far as I read, it's actually even more, uh, the IP is more important and, and probably mobile gamers are not just like randomly looking for a game, you know, at, at the place that they download their apps. They're actually looking for a brand that they know. Yeah, so it would be great yeah. to get your point of view on that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I think for a long time in Asia, uh, user acquisition has been, not only just targeted paid UA, it's been it's been a mix of online and offline marketing, and as a result of that, um, a lot of brands have sort of come to the forefront. Um, there are brands that the users have familiarity with. Um, they're playing socially. Um, a lot of games in Asia are highly social. They're playing with their friends. Um, they want to be playing brands that they know, um, and we've seen a trend of this when we talk to developers here. Is that you know. Um, brands are super important. Um, you know, not only brands recognized in Asia, but but globally recognizable brands. Um, mm -hmm. 
it's it, it helps a lot the acquisition um it helps a lot with things like um ip crossovers which are very popular to do um in in asia um so for example a, a certain you know a, a season of a game or a competition branded as a, as an ip with a crossover um certain characters uh, that come into the games with a recognizable brand as a crossover um, and, and how is it about like this is kind of like the global, you know, uh, IPs. But what about like local, you know, specific Chinese IPs or specific like oh, in each country? How, how is that? Maybe you can you can tell us a definitely. little bit about that. Yeah. So um, in China specifically, there are a lot of IPs that um, were built as brands uh, early on in you know the PC gaming days. Um, and I'll talk probably a bit more about. platforms that are popular in Asia later, but um, brands that were popular on PC and brands that had grown from actually old folklore. Um, so Three Kingdoms, for example, um, Journey to the West, The Monkey King. Um, these types of uh, IPs um, built around fantasy stories and folklore from you know, hundreds of years ago um, mm-hmm. are actually quite popular here. Um, and you know, uh, you've, we've seen, it's, it's funny too, because you would think that These brands are maybe more resonant with um, you know older folks but actually even the younger generation Gen Z etc have a lot of pride around these um, you know, these folklore stories um, they're very engaged with it um, these are these are brands that get propagated through the media in China you know, through soap operas TV shows um, cartoons um, those types of things um, and they resonate a lot here um, And you know, as I was saying, a lot of the uh, PC games, um, so Fantasy Westward Journey, for example, was um, a PC game from you know, the 90s, um, which mm-hmm. uh, ended up becoming uh, an incredibly popular uh, mobile game uh, from NetEase. Um, that's one example. Um, Three Kingdoms uh, is something that Alibaba is now leaning into with their strategy game, um, San Goku's strategy. Um, which has done incredibly well in China. Um, and at any given time, you can see on the top 50 grossing in China, you can see um, a handful of um, games based off of these IPs. Yeah, and, and if we, all, all of them are, are considered to be IP, right? Because you said like it's a like folklore games and so on, but, but someone owned this IP, even that it's kind of like 100 years of history, someone owned yeah. that. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's an interesting one. So, Um, Three Kingdoms, for example, um, it's a folklore story. Um, however, um, a Japanese company, Koei Tecmo, um, actually built up their own brand around the Three Kingdoms IP and mm-hmm. developed that brand. And now um, that particular flavor of Three Kingdoms is uh, very popular in China. Um, and Alibaba as a company actually had the license um, when they built Three Kingdoms from That, that version of the IP from Koei Tecmo, which is ironically a Japanese company. Okay. Um, so that was a sort of an interesting nuance. Um, I guess, you know, at the time, um, those were not established as owned IPs, but, you know, now uh, they actually are. Moving on, uh, looking at uh, the, the new trend in the Asia gaming landscape, uh, we see a lot of the uh, Asian developers, but a lot of them are mostly like from, from China uh, going global. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe before we start for, for those that are not so familiar with, uh, with kind of like the big players in, in China, maybe you can just give us kind of like a one-on-one on, on this one. 
Yeah, sure. Yeah, definitely. Um, so the big players in China, I would say, I would be remiss without mentioning Tencent as the biggest player. Um, also our main partner in China, a wonderful part, a wonderful company to partner with. Mm -hmm. um, the biggest player, um, you know, as their games business has continued to grow and become a multi-billion dollar games business, they've also continued building their social presence uh, through WeChat, which is, um, if, if folks are familiar with Line or Kakao in, in Japan or Korea, um, WeChat is basically the, the Chinese version of that as mm -hmm. an oversimplification, but it's, it's so deep um, in its functionality and just being something that is essential for everyday life uh, when it comes to chatting, to ordering food, transportation, et cetera. It's a, it really is a super app. Um, so Tencent has built up their social graph and their ability, you know, their, their user pool through, through WeChat as well. Um, and they really are the, the, the behemoth. Um, other and, players and, that and are- can you, give, can you give like a specific example of, of what, what they did that it's probably unique to, to Tencent in, in using WeChat in games? Yes. Um, so WeChat's actually a you know uh, WeChat serves as a platform for games as well. There's a, there's a tab on WeChat where you can go for games. Um, for your game to be on WeChat, um, it has to actually go through a rigorous um, sort of evaluation of game quality and KPIs, etc. So only the best games are surfaced on WeChat. Um, and your, you know, the games that are pushed to you um, are a result a lot of times of how you behave in the WeChat app. So very similar to how Facebook can target you um, through how you behave in Facebook, uh, through your interactions. WeChat has uh, a lot of that same and sometimes more advanced technology. Uh, so it's definitely a way for to to acquire um, the right type of user um, into your game. And just a follow-up on that, if I'm a developer in the West and I want my game to be published on, on WeChat, what, what should I do? You should, you know, definitely approach Tencent first. Um, and yeah. you're going to have to, you know, make a great game, I would say, is the first thing you have to do. Your game has to be, you know, highly engaging, be able to retain at high levels, uh, monetize at high levels, and, and really have something that, um, you know, uh, is... is uh, I guess, interesting and unique to Chinese users. Um, so there are, you know, a lot of games apply to be on, on WeChat every year. Only a handful of them get on WeChat. Um, Tencent also has their own uh, wonderful internal studios um, that you know also have to apply uh, to be on that platform. So, um, okay. yeah. Okay, so Tencent is one. Who else uh, do we have? Uh, NetEase is another. Um, and NetEase is uh, a developer of more core games, I would say. Um, Fantasy Westward Journey is one, uh, Ghost, um, but also shooter games, Knives Out, um, a, a great game which is popular in, in areas beyond China now. Um, so they've, you know, for a long time have worked with foreign developers. They have a JV with Blizzard um, and have worked with, you know, other foreign developers as well. Um, their reputation is, is quite good um, and they have a reputation as a very developer first company, uh, one that really uh, emphasizes product quality, um, one that treats you know game development with you know, respect and care. Um, and they're they're also a great company. Um, that would be the, the second biggest one. Um, third, um, you know beyond those two, it's it's a toss up. Alibaba, Ali Games has been you know growing a lot lately. Um, you know, Fun Plus, uh, Lilith. Um, these are other companies I talk 
about later. I think FunPlus has more of an overseas focus, but they're definitely a, a big company in China. And then ByteDance, uh, which is you know the developer of TikTok, which I think a lot of people are familiar with as a as a social app. Um, their games division has uh, grown steadily over the last couple of years, um, and they now have you know over two two thousand people um, just focused on games. Wow. Yeah, it will be anything that you see in in, in China about Biden's because we, we keep on hearing, you know, they just just had that big acquisition in Southeast Asia and yeah. probably they have very, very, you know, uh, aggressive plans in terms of, of their their place in gaming globally. Definitely. Um, you know, they're they're not messing around. Um, they're they're trying to acquire the right studio talent. Um, they've already got they feel like I think the platform um with you know TikTok with with Douyin which is the, the the Chinese version of TikTok um a highly engaging platform that they believe they can use to acquire users in the same way that you know a Facebook platform would work um mm-hmm. and they're building out publishing tools as well um you know technology um server infrastructure live operations etc now what they need is is the right content um, so their content strategy I think is a mix of you know acquiring the right studios and the genres that they feel are promising so hence the moonton acquisition um, but also you know partnering with with other developers and trying to, to get games onto their platform great so as, as we said you know we see more and more of, of the Chinese companies doing amazing work but it's not stopping in China right they're doing a yeah. lot of stuff um, and then the question is you know what can you know when I say we or what can like Western companies outside of, of the region can can learn from from this uh, you know Bohemus and the big gaming companies in China yeah yeah I mean that's uh, a loaded question about what can the, the West learn from Asia Um and I think there's there's some history to go through. I think the learnings from Asia have evolved over time. And I think as learnings were absorbed into the gaming industry by osmosis, they've you know the gaming industry has kind of converged on a few different things. Um, one of my mentors at Kabam actually told me um, that you know when I was moving to Beijing that Asia is generally you know three to five years ahead of the West at, at any given point in time. Um, and I think that's reflected in you know. Um, the way cities are set up here, the way um, people pay for things, transportation, etc. But I think especially it's it's true for um, mobile games. Um, you know, in the early days of mobile, you had you know in the West you had a lot of free-to-play companies transitioning from Facebook onto mobile. You had Zynga, you had Kabam, Playdom, you had Crowdstar, um, and then you had the Supercell era, um, which in some ways is still continuing. Um, but even at that time, I think the free-to-play business model was relatively new to the West. Um, and if you look back at the genesis of free-to-play, um, you can see it actually started in, in Asia. That was one of the key things that, that Western gaming learned from Asia is the implementation of, of the free-to-play model. You look at games like Fantasy Westward Journey, which I mentioned. You look at Legend of Myrrh in the early, very early 2000s. Um, those were sort of pioneers of the free-to-play MTX model. Um, then you actually had um, our own game, FIFA Online, um, which was built by our uh, Korea studio, uh, amazing studio, um, which was mm-hmm. the first uh, sort of an only uh, console at a free-to-play port where the entire progression and, and, and game design was changed for free-to-play and successfully. Um, then started getting into this, this new trend of mobile free-to-play 
um, I would say sort of systems design, um, be it progression systems, social systems, uh, synchronous PVP. A lot of, you know, we were noticing in the sort of mid-2010s, uh, a lot of the best systems design um, was being seeded from developers in Asia. Um, you had multi-tree growth progression in games like Summoner's War coming out of Korea that were driving deeper in-game spend. Uh, you had location-based social um, in games like Honor of Kings in China and uh, Monster Strike in Japan. Um, and now I mentioned sort of the cutting edge of network social uh, from WeChat and, and TikTok and how they're being used um, to drive acquisition into games. That's something else that I think um, the West is going to learn from from Asia, and these systems. What, what, are... what is the is the last one? Yeah, what what is kind of the next thing to learn? So I think the next thing. Um, so I'm talking about uh, networked social and how you know the the, the deep social interactions um, are driving, you know, relationships in game. They're driving you know in game and out of game sort of meetups and and communication, um, and they're driving sort of incredibly high retention rates. Um, you know, as a mobile product guy, you, you'll you'll look at retention rates, D1s of 40% generally being good, but a lot of the games that are successful here in Asia are driving D1s of, you know, you're just like looking 55 to 60%, which is incredible. Um, and and, and this, this is be, being dr driven by, by what? By, by, you said, like a physical interaction or by the, the, the social media itself that they, they know how to engage with the user in, in a different way? Not necessarily the social media, but the social systems that are underpinned by the uh, the chatting apps like WeChat, um, some of the location-based things you can do in the game. So as an example, in Honor of Kings, um, you have you know the ability to you know add and sort of interact with people nearby you, um, and in, in sort of organize tournaments um, with folks nearby. Um, in your in your general area, which encourages then you know physical meeting up, um, which then encourages you know sort of more social pressure to remain in the game, um, and sort of building relationships in the game, sort of you know drawing you to come back into the experience. So many things to learn. Thank you for for that. Earlier in our conversation, we discussed about FIFA um and the different version that you have in asia compared to the one that you have in the west maybe you can tell us a little bit more about that yeah sure um so i can't go into specifics um but i can say that we do have different SKUs of certain products live in certain regions um, fifa mobile is one of those where we have an asia version which is searchable on the App Store in China, Japan, and Korea. It's a, it's a different version of the game. Um, and I think, you know, more generally, um, you've seen this trend with a lot of successful developers who understand the importance of culturalized SKUs um, and culturalized live operations uh, to the success of those games regionally to drive that upside. Um, especially when you're talking about regions like, I think, APAC, where you have, you know, very niche player preferences in places like Japan and Korea, and also the regulatory environment in China, uh, where games need approval, and uh, the Ministry of Culture has a direct say in sort of what type of content is acceptable, and you know where foreign entities are for the most part not able to directly publish and, and market their games, um, but also in other emerging markets like Latin America and Southeast Asia, um, we've seen you know Garena 
with Free Fire and how they've culturalized and tailored that game. You've seen these in other mass traffic games like PUBG Mobile um, coming out of Asia, Arena Valor. And that's something that I think is very important. It's something that we've recognized is, is very important um, and something that, that we are, um, you know, have carried forward with uh, culturalized skews of, of our games in Asia. Great stuff. And if we look at best practices for developers before they launch their game in China, anything in particular that you can think about? If you were to talk more generally about what's needed for, for China, I mean, you, you definitely need a separate SKU for China. Um, and the reason for that is because you're going to have to run that SKU through a government approval process um, yeah. in order for your game to be able to launch in China. Um, some of the things that... Say you've got, for example, um, you know, a Battle Royale game um, and you want to launch that game in China. You may have to go through um, a lot of changes to the actual core gameplay itself um, to make that game palatable um, so that it gets approved. Um, things like violence have to be toned down. Um, you can't have red blood. You're going to have to change the, the color of, of, of that or remove it entirely. Um, if people are dying in your game, you may have to... Uh, change that to be, you know, um, you know, I'm disappearing for a while. I'm going to say goodbye, right? Those, wow. those types of things. And PUBG Mobile is actually a great example of this because um, the, the game, you know, Player Unknown Battlegrounds, the, the game in China, the name is is game for peace. Right? You're you're not fighting for you're fighting for peace. You're not fighting for as a battleground. Um, and you know, almost everything about the game, um, in terms of you know how you know deaths or how kill someone in, in the game or you know, violence or everything like that is completely toned down. Um, but the gameplay itself is still, it's still Battle Royale. You still parachute in and you're still yeah. you know, looking for other players to, to, to shoot and engage in, in combat with. Um, but, so excuse you know, is, is number, is number one, have a, have a separate one. What yes. else? Yes. Uh, SKUs is, isn't, is the first one. Um, I think, you know, if you're launching your game in China, as I mentioned, um, most foreign developers are not able to publish in China. That's just a regulatory um, roadblock. So you've got to find a great publishing partner to distribute for you. Um, mm -hmm. You know, which is why you would approach approach, excuse me, um, a Tencent or a NetEase or a smaller developer um, like you know a Yuzu, for example, or you know a Giant Interactive or something like that. Um, they can publish your game for you. Um, and when you know that game is published, um, you've got your SKU, you're sending your SKU to that publishing partner. That publisher is submitting it to the App Store. Um, and when it comes to live operations, um, you know, it's, uh, it really depends on the working model with how you run it. But a lot of times, those publishers will have people that they can throw resources against it to operate the game uh, when it comes to um, the in-game merchandising strategy, when it comes to, you know, gotcha, when it comes to player outreach, um, and definitely when it comes to marketing. Um, you'll definitely want to align on um, a marketing budget uh, for the game, um, and those publishers will then, you know, market the game through online and offline marketing, through paid UA, etc. Um, as a foreign developer, um, you actually cannot uh, engage in marketing activities on your own. Okay, and and uh, regarding the the business model, most of that would be IAP model. Correct. Yeah, yeah, that would be IAP model. I mean, there are other games that um, are not free to play. Um, you still need those. Still need a, a publishing partner um, 
Tencent, for example, has the Wii game platform, which is uh, very similar to Steam, where you can go and download uh, premium PC games, um, but still needs to be published through um, a local publisher. Great stuff. Thank you for sharing. Uh, and if I continue the point that you just mentioned about offline marketing, it would be great if you can share with us your experience of working with influencers and uh, KOLs and how how big is it in China? Definitely. Um, you know, brand marketing KOLs, influencers um, are, a, are a huge and, and growing uh, thing in China. Um, you even have the presence of, of virtual KOLs um, and digital KOLs that are designed and then establish their own followings, um, which are then used for, you know, marketing and commerce and things like that. Um, paid Tell acquisition... me more about that. What does it mean that, that there is a game that they created like a, a 3D or not a 3D image, a character, yeah. and, and they just like push him and create content? Yeah, exactly. Like a, a manga character, for example, like an, an anime style, stylized sort of anime character, female will be you know, will develop a male following in China. Um, mm. And as a result of that, she'll be able to stream and sell merchandise um, or promote games, etc. Um, and as these KOLs, virtual KOLs, establish uh, bigger followings, um, they become an acquisition conduit in themselves um, for games and um, for merchandise, etc. This is just incredible. And probably this is something that we will see just just growing in the next few years, right? That's correct. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, paid acquisition in China for a long time has been very expensive. If you're talking about acquiring a user into a mobile MMORPG, you know, solely through targeted paid acquisition, the cost per installs for that um, a lot of times are going to be just incredibly pricey and you may not be able to 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 run you know targeted paid ua profitably especially if your game doesn't monetize um really deeply um so you know doing it through you're still spending money on things like kols uh, brand marketing etc um, but you're able to get a larger swath of, of players into your game a lot of the times and then because a lot of these games have these deep social systems um they're able to retain um, a lot of that traffic and keep their game at a very fairly high level of traffic um, through through those activities. Great. Wow. That's, uh, yeah, I think that definitely, you know, that that's where, where the, the future is, right? Yeah. Virtual KOLs, and then probably you can take all the data around, you know, what the players like and create, according to that, a specific character that people will be able to be more engaged with. Exactly. Yeah. And I think, you know, a company like ByteDance is, is really pioneering a lot of the, the virtual KOL space. Um, they have so much data as well through how people are interacting with, you know, TikTok and, and Douyin, as I mentioned, that they're using this to sort of tailor their creation of a virtual KOL. So it's really exciting. Yeah, definitely something to, to watch out for. Uh, let, let's move on. Anything else that you think other countries can learn from the mobile gaming industry in, in China? Yeah, well, I think, um, you know, one of the other things that, that I was going to mention is is the, um, when we talked about, you know, what we can learn, um, is, um, you know, the, the sort of the investment in, um, I would say, globally distributed teams for a lot of games. Um, as I mentioned, I think before, maybe I didn't mention it, it was that a lot of Chinese developers are trying to now go global, um, with their games. Um, and if you look at, you know, even globally, the top 
30 grossing games the past year, 21 of those are um, Asian developers, um, and, a, and a large proportion of those are from, from Chinese uh, developers. Um, and if we think about how a lot of Chinese developers are looking outside of China, um, you see how NetEase handled Knives Out, where they had a small team in Japan, and once the metrics there started proving out to be amazing, they scaled up uh, a team, uh, a fairly large team in Japan. Um, Mihoyo, um, another company that's very innovative uh, in China, um, not through you know sort of mind-blowing innovation, but what I would call you know, sort of micro-innovation in the sense that you know studios are releasing games, they'll you know pick up on small things or mechanics that maybe they can do a little bit better. They'll iterate on that, and then um, they'll get to the best version of that mechanic, or they'll get to the best version of a tech stack, for example, and use this as a baseline. A new baseline. Um, this process is repeated. So I think innovation in China kind of sneaks up on you. Um, and, you know, NetEase is one example of that through how they've iterated on, you know, um, you know, looking at KPIs and then just making decisive sort of investments. Um, Mihoyo and in, in how they first released uh, Honkai Impact before they released Genshin. Um, and, you know, over time developed a, a tech stack and a level of quality that uh, really became innovative in the sense that it was able to truly go cross-platform as a mobile-first game. And and what you can say about the working culture in China? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's part of it is 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 working hard, and there's definitely a a working culture in China called nine nine six, which is yeah. you know you work nine a.m. to nine p.m. six days a week. Um, and it's that's part of it. I think the other part of it is um, being strategic and decisive with some of these decisions to scale. Um, you know, when you look at, um, I was saying, the speed to market and the fearlessness with which you're making investments to scale up teams to maximize a region, um, we Chinese developers have been doing that in China for a long time, right? The Honor of Kings team in Tencent was, you know, 500 people big. The uh, the team that built, you know, Genshin Impact was several hundred people big. Um, wow. But now, but now they're doing that beyond China too. Um, the Knives Out example, as I mentioned, uh, Garena with Free Fire. Um, there, you know, Garena is a Southeast Asian company, but the Free Fire dev team actually sits in Shanghai, and that's a several hundred-person dev team. Um, and now they've got, you know, large pods of people in Latin America and Southeast Asia to you know, capture the upside in those markets. Wow, it's it's really crazy numbers. Really, the size of the operation and the number of employees working on on one game. Moving on, it would be great to hear from you about the strategy and uh, hardcore genres in China. I think when I was talking about the strategy in hardcore games, I was I was speaking in terms of some of these companies again trying to go global. Um, Fun Plus and Lilith, um, companies that I respect a ton, are probably the best examples of that. And these these developers that are now flexing their muscles globally. Um, in Fun Plus, you have a company that went through, I think, multiple transformations. Um, after being founded, it was really focused in the early 2010s on casual games. Um, and then after selling off part of the company, sort of came back and transformed itself into a global leader in SLGs. And SLG is basically a, the strategy, you know, sort of builder type game that, that I'm talking about. Now, that genre is nothing new. It's... Um, it's the genre we were working on back at Kabam, Beijing, with uh, Kingdoms of Camelot, which was the uh, the top grossing game in the world in 2012. But then you noticed, you know, developers in China like 
and starting to take back share in that genre, like Elex, for example. And then you had Fun Plus launching King of Avalon, um, operating the game globally from Beijing in a distributed sort of live ops model with, with smaller teams in different parts of the world, um, and really maximizing that game as a global top grossing game. And then you see um, innovation in that genre um, from IGG, where you know they, they sort of pivoted the genre from portrait to landscape mode, um, and releasing that game to the entire world. Um, Lilith sort of followed and iterated on that and launched Rise of Kingdoms, which was a plus one of that from a fidelity and gameplay standpoint. Um, and then Fun Plus just released State of Survival, which is um, their third top 10 global SLG hit in a row. Now, you don't really see any company doing, uh, you know, in mobile doing consecutive global top grossing hits. Supercell did it. Um, one with with their games, but now Fun Plus has, and they've done it, you know, as a Chinese developer building games for the whole world. Um, and I think, you know, how and what's what's making that, you know, the, the their ability to to be successful in a few yeah. launches, one after the other. Yeah, I mean, they definitely have a blueprint um, for how to develop these games. As I said, this genre was a genre that a lot of developers in China have a lot of experience with. Um, but they've, you know, sort of taken advantage of this micro innovation. I mean, you look at like a Lord's Mobile or a Rise of Kingdoms. They've they sort of upped the fidelity a little bit. They've maybe improved the the gameplay a bit, the combat systems. Whereas before they were, you know, um, not sort of real time animated. Now you have sort of animated real time combat in some of these SLGs. Um, so different things have been sort of tweaked and tuned. And then on top of that, they've developed a real expertise in, in, in user acquisition. You know, from top to bottom, that company is um, incredible. Um, and he's a brilliant guy, and he's hired um, a lot of great, uh, great talent and seeding it with just really smart people um, who are really passionate about um, scaling these types of games globally. So this was one part of expanding from China globally, but what about companies that want to uh, expand to China and launch their games in China? Any uh, tips for them? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, for Western developers coming to China, I do think it's pretty difficult. Um, I have seen some some new entrants lately. I think, you know, Scopely's developing a presence here. I think Wildlife, other other studios like that are developing a presence um, it's um, it, it's something that I think is going to have to be one of the things as a if you're a Western developer coming to China, um, you can't look at short-term results. Um, it's going to take a long time. I think you know EA. We've been in we've been in China more than a decade, um, and we're starting to hit our stride the last few years. Um, but it's it's something where you know you have to be here for a while. Um, you have to learn, um, and you really have to iterate. Um, and there are going to be a lot of challenges, uh, but relationships are super important. Relationship with your publishing partner, relationships in general, um, with business relationships in China are important. Um, and just take take the long road. Um, it, 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 it's a marathon rather than a sprint. And if you come in with, with that mindset, and if you're able to continue investing um, with that long-term mindset, you'll probably have, have more success than if you um, Try to try to do you know look for just an early win. And, and what are you most excited about uh, looking at the future of mobile gaming in Asia? Mm, that's a tough one. I think um, I'm excited for 
this region, I think, to have more more pull on the global stage. Um, I think not in term not only in terms of you know overall, um, but also just the the game the developer community here. I, I see um, so much more respect for developers here. Um, I see Chinese players here now um, wanting to push outward and to play with people around the world. Um, I was actually you know, I was on holiday a couple of days ago, and uh, I ran into someone, uh, one of the hotel workers, who had been playing FIFA for the last 10 years, um, and he was so excited to, you know, he's like, I'm, I've been VPNing in so I can play with with people, and you know, now like Chinese players really want to want to reach outward, and they want that exposure to to other, they want to compete with with other types of players. So I think, um, not only seeing the recognition of development talent here, but also seeing the recognition of the player base here, and and starting to see global developers, you know, help to design and cater to that player base. Uh, it's going to be a really interesting and exciting uh, development. Cool. Thank you very much, Devin. It was a pleasure. I learned a lot. Um, great to host you here, and, and thank you very much for your time. Thanks a lot, Yuval. It was it was great to uh, it's great to be here. Thank you so much for listening to the episode today. Next month, we will be back with another interesting guest. And in the meantime, please make sure to hit the subscribe button uh, on your podcast software so we can make sure to update you with any new content that we will be releasing. So for now on, have a great day and see you soon.